I am Logan Medish, your host of the High Caliber History Podcast, and today we're going to look at a bitter breakup in the firearms community. We're talking about the end of the relationship between John Moses Browning and the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, and how that fallout almost prevented one of the greatest semi-auto shotguns from ever coming to market. When you're done listening to this episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd text it to someone who you think might really enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get into the breakup. The genius of John Moses Browning is universally understood among those in the gun world. In the related business world, it was the genius of one Thomas G. Bennett at Winchester and his decision to basically buy every single patent that Browning came up with that made the company the powerhouse that it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We're talking of a total of 44 patents, uh, 44 different guns over the course of 17 years. So not an insubstantial amount of product. But that all changed, however, in January of 1902, and that's when Winchester parted ways with Mr. Browning and his brothers. And it was a big deal, and the history would prove to be even bigger. But we have to back up and understand, first, how we got to this point. In March of 1899, Browning and his brother Matt had written to Mr. Bennett at Winchester about a new gun that they'd been working on for some time. And unfortunately, this time around, things didn't go as smoothly as they had for the 20 years prior that they'd been working together. Instead of immediately jumping on the idea, Bennett kind of drug his feet a little bit. The two men worked on the gun's design specifics back and forth until Browning had reached his breaking point after Bennett had failed to make a commitment to the design after years of working on it. Later in life, John likened his reaching the end of his rope to, quote, one of those Yellowstone geysers that takes a while to get hot enough to blow. To settle the matter once and for all, John left his home in Ogden, Utah, and went to the Winchester factory in New Haven, Connecticut to meet with Thomas Bennett. One way or another, a final decision was going to be reached right here and right now. John was pretty sure he knew how things were going to go. In the meeting, the two finally discussed a price. Now, the exact figure is lost to history, but Browning later referred to it as a whopping price, one so high that there wasn't much chance he'd accept it. Now, whatever the figure actually was is probably of little significance to Winchester's bottom line, but there was more to it this time around. In all of the previous dealings between Bennett and Winchester and Browning, uh, dating back to their very first venture in 1883, the price that John named was accepted, and that was the end of it. Winchester would take out the patents in Browning's name, and then the company was free to make the guns and profit off of the design from there on out. However, as Browning's notoriety uh, and fame as one of the most accomplished gun designers grew, he began dealing with other companies, and they had all agreed on a royalty-based system of compensation. So the time had come, in Browning's mind, to do the same thing with Winchester. And this is where the problems start. Bennett protested, and the two men exchanged words. Browning collected his guns from the company's drafting room, and he left. And just like that, one of the greatest relationships in the firearms industry was over. Now, the gun that caused the breakup would go on to be known as the Auto 5 semi-automatic shotgun. History would show this rift to be costly for Bennett and Winchester, and far more costly, in fact, than if he'd simply agreed to Browning's terms in the first place. 
nonetheless, though, we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, when Browning left New Haven that day in January of 1902, the future of the Auto 5 was far from a sure thing. So next up, Mr. Browning decided to take his gun to Remington. Now, despite the unpleasant mood he was undoubtedly in upon leaving the Winchester factory without a contract in hand, uh, John was undeterred. His confidence in the design of his shotgun was high, and he knew that another manufacturer would be happy to produce it. Exactly what manufacturer, though, was yet to be determined. Even though FN had already been producing his semi-auto pistols with great success, John's preference was to keep the production of this new shotgun on this side of the Atlantic and in the United States. So on January 8th, 1902, he reached out to Marcellus Hartley, who was the president of Remington, to gauge his interest in what John called an automatic shotgun, as opposed to a semi-automatic shotgun that we know them as today. Now, Hartley was so enthused that he asked Browning to come by the factory that very afternoon. So Browning arrived a little bit early for his meeting, and he was told to have a seat in the waiting room. Mr. Hartley would arrive shortly. After an hour of waiting, though, the phone rang and George Bingham, Mr. Hartley's secretary, took the call. When he hung up the phone, Browning noticed that George was uh, white as a ghost. Um, what he was about to tell Browning next was almost unbelievable. He said, I have bad news for you, Mr. Browning. Mr. Hartley died of a heart attack just a few minutes ago. And just like that, John's preference to keep the gun's production in the United States went out the window. At 45 years old, he then decided to take the gun overseas for his first foreign voyage, and he headed to FN in Herstal, just outside of Liège, Belgium. Over the course of his remaining 24 years, John would spend a total of 18 months, or about six and a quarter percent of his life, on the Atlantic Ocean, just traveling to and from Europe. So Browning first met with FN's director, Henry Fernet, uh, and it went far better than he could have expected. The shotgun's potential was seen immediately, and within four to six weeks of their first meeting, a contract was signed on March 24, 1902. The contract granted FN the exclusive world rights to make and sell the gun. The result was exactly what Browning had hoped to achieve with Bennett and Winchester just two months prior, except this time he got his royalty agreement. Part of Browning's agreement with FN was to allow for a personal order of 10,000 guns to be sold by him in the U.S. It was a tall order financially, but it proved his confidence in the gun's design and the American market's desire for such a gun. As usual, Browning was right on the money. He had all 10,000 of the guns sold within just a year. Because of the political actions regarding import tariffs in 1904 that would have financial implications for both parties involved, Browning worked out another agreement with FN that allowed the shotgun to be manufactured and marketed in the U.S. Uh, by a U.S.-based company. John was lucky that Henry and others at FN liked him so much, and they agreed without any complaint. Fittingly, things kind of came uh, full circle of sorts, and the U.S.-based company that Browning chose to make the shotgun was Remington. They introduced it as the Model 11, and it was an instant success. John's dealings with FN in 1902 and the subsequent production of the shotgun there in 1903 did not go unnoticed by Mr. Bennett and others at Winchester. It was painfully obvious that Bennett had made a rare and costly mistake, and that was not sitting well. 
Browning's absence at Winchester had garnered enough attention and questions that the company had obviously grown tired of repeating the same thing over and over each time someone new asked what had happened between the two parties. So on August 21st, 1903, Winchester released a public letter explaining in their own way what had happened between the two parties. Now, it may or may not have been seen as such at the time, but through the benefit of more than a century of hindsight, that document has become known as the Winchester Sour Grapes Letter. Now, the letter was simply signed Winchester Repeating Arms Company, but of course it was on letterhead noting that Bennett was president at the top, and so it's essentially Bennett's words, even though it's not said as such. And it was explained that for years they had, quote, bought everything which Browning invented, which had merit, whether or not we used it. By 1902, however, Browning, quote, had become rather high-priced, and Winchester had let them go as a result. Now, if the letter had ended there, no one really would have thought anything of it. At the end of the day, profit margins are everything to a company, and parting ways with someone over money was certainly commonplace. Unfortunately, the letter does not end there. It goes on to say that Browning and his brothers felt that, quote, they were the only people who could invent guns uh, and that they alone knew what the public wanted in terms of new arms. Winchester acknowledged that John, quote, was in many respects a genius, but then they started throwing punches. Uh, it was claimed that none of Browning's inventions could not have been made as presented and that it was only through the tireless work by people in the employ of Winchester that any of Browning's designs could have reached a point where, quote, they could have been manufactured successfully. Winchester then claimed that the Model 1886 lever-action rifle was more largely the invention of our Mr. Mason, and that all Browning contributed to the gun were the locking features only. That's a serious accusation. As a final blow, Winchester said that, we shall be perfectly able to get along without the Brownings and shall probably be better off without them than with them. On the other hand, we do not believe they will get along as well without us as they did with us. Those are some powerful fighting words. So history would go on to show us that this would not be the case. When production of the Auto 5 ended in 1998, more than 2.7 million of them had been made and that's not including the hundreds of thousands more that were made under license to Remington and Savage. Of course, Browning would go on to invent dozens more guns and cartridges until his death in 1926. One need look no further than the legacy of the Model 1911 semi-auto pistol uh, to see that John Moses Browning and his brothers did, in fact, get along perfectly well without Winchester. And of course, Winchester did quite well without Browning, as they had initially thought. So it's kind of an odd saga between the two. Uh, things started very, very well, like, like all young relationships, and everything is honeymoon and stars in the eyes. But unfortunately, things started to wane, uh, and, and the two got a little bitter with one another, and it ended on unfortunate terms. But Nonetheless, things worked out for both parties, and the Auto 5 ends up getting made, and it's a very successful gun, uh, and Browning had a great legacy, and of course, Winchester continued to have a great legacy. And so, was it for the best? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows what we might have seen had the two parties continued their relationship. 
but I don't think it really matters in the end because we still saw a lot of great products coming from both the Browning and the Winchester names. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode talking about the breakup between Browning and Winchester. Uh, If you are not subscribed to the podcast, I'd appreciate you doing so on your favorite platform. And we will see you right here next week with another great episode.